Hey, let's open our Bibles, Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, I want to talk about hope today because that's really what we have. Micah chapter 5, let's turn there, or 4, excuse me. I saw the 5 on the screen, it threw me off. Micah chapter 4, that little book of the minor prophet Micah. A uh, little review uh, of the Old Testament, again, so that you got a kind of a framework of what the Old Testament's all about. You can kind of get a grasp on, it's not just some big long book, but there's actually order to it. It's set up in different sections, and these are the sections here, 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Can you say that with me? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. See, now you got it down already, and pretty soon you're going to be going, I wish you would stop that 5, 12 business because he's driving uh, me insane. But that's how we learn, right? Repetition. So, so in, the, in those five sections where we have a lot of fives, we have the law or the five books of Moses. We have history, 12 books. We have poetry, five books. Major prophets, five books. And then minor prophets, 12 books. And that's where we are today in the minor prophets. But We've been looking at each section there, and, and we have in uh, this section of poetry, that's incredible, the, the five books of poetry, and it starts off with what? With Job, right? Job, how many of you know about, have you ever read Job? You, you've heard about Job, but have you ever read the story of Job? It's, it's a kind of a long book, it's like 42 chapters, something like that, but Job, they believe, those that study these things, that Job is the oldest book. The oldest book. And I find it fascinating because what is it about? It's about suffering. It's about trials, it's about trouble, and that's the stuff of life, isn't it? But how God turns things around and how Job's eyes are open to the greatness of God in the end. It kind of turns around. Job is complaining, 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 and his friends are like no good at helping him. But in the end, uh, Job's eyes are open. He says, oh, God, I just, I see you and who you are. Psalms, you all kind of get an idea. The Psalms is, is like the songbook of Israel, the songbook, 150 chapters. We're, we're, we're studying in the book of Psalms on Wednesday nights, uh, not every psalm, but uh, various psalms, and we have different guys teaching as well. It's just a wonderful time. Proverbs, are the, what's the key word for Proverbs? Wisdom. Wisdom. It's a book of wisdom, right? A lot of the Proverbs written by Solomon, not all of them, but many of them written by Solomon. And then we have Ecclesiastes, which is also written by Solomon. And Ecclesiastes, if you've never read it, you've got to read it. Twelve chapters, you can read it in a half an hour, but it's about the meaning of life. And Solomon, like, tries everything in life. Tries, he tries everything, and he had the money, and he had the power, and he had everything, the opportunity, and, and he tried things that he really shouldn't have tried, too. But he found out in the end, you know, what, what's the meaning of life? What is it all about? And, and, and what he says at the end is, is to fear God and keep his commandments. There's nothing more important than that. To fear God and to do what he says. That's what life is all about. Have a relationship with God and follow him. And the last one is kind of, it's kind of they call it a love song, the Song of Solomon. A love song. So 
512, the big picture in the, in the books of the prophets, all the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him. And though they testified against them, they would not listen. This whole idea of the major prophets, the minor prophets, the bottom line is that God sent them to his people, to the people on the earth, to bring them back to him. That's the whole bottom line. That's what it's all about. So there are a lot of subjects. There's a lot of things going on. We're going to look at some some end times things today, but the whole point of it all is that you and I would turn to Him, would turn back to Him if we're not turning towards Him already. The key point, the big point in Micah 6, 8, and I'm going to refer to this every time because it kind of all rolls around this verse. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to do the right thing, to love mercy? got to think about that, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he's asking for you and to me. This is what what God wants as we turn to him. And finally, the big hope. We're going to look at that next time in chapter 5, the Savior that he's prophesied that he comes to Bethlehem. We know that that's where he was certainly born. Now, in the books or the chapters 1, 2, and 3, we've talked about those already that we have a choice to listen. In chapter 2, we have, you know, tell us what we want to hear. The people were saying that. And then chapter 3, we looked at it last time that there was corruption. There was corruption. And these things all apply to us today. Even though they were written many, many, many years ago, they apply to us today. We see in political corruption, we see spiritual leaders that are, are corrupt, that are in it for gain, in it for themselves, taking advantage, exploiting people. And we saw there in chapter 3 that God actually turns away from them. He will not listen to them. And it's, it's the same with us when we're disobedient. We need to turn back to Him and get right and to act justly and to re- restore that relationship that we have that we can have with God. Now today in Micah chapter 4, I think the key word is hope. And and it's a future hope. He's talking about things that are going to happen in the future, but I think that for us, that the hope is that we see that God is in control, that God has a plan, He always has a plan, that God wants to restore, He has a heart to restore, and He wants to give you and me hope. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get hopeless. And this is the answer, right? You go to the Rhode Island flag. You look at the Rhode Island flag and you see what is the motto on there. So if, if you need hope, what you need to do is go down to the state house, right? We've been in the news recently, right? Our Rhode Island state house, and I'm not trying to pick on any particular people, but, you know, we've been in, you know that? You've heard that recently? We've been in the news. One of the representatives said, oh, yeah, what they do down there at the state house, they just, they just partying. Well, they're supposed to be making laws, right? It's not a good thing. And then, then it gets caught on by the national news. So all I'm trying to say about that is, is, well, pray for our government. We need to pray for our government. But the hope isn't found there. 
you know, it, you can try to find out where that came from, where the hope and the anchor, they obviously, to me, came from Hebrews chapter 6, which we'll close with today, that hope is an anchor for the soul. But it's not hope in the state house, it's not hope in government, it's not hope in leaders, it's not hope in anything but in Jesus Christ, in, in God and what His plan has for you and for me. The prophets then, these prophets, they spoke to their day, but they also spoke about the future. I love it. Speaking about Job, I said Job, Job, uh, he says this at the end. He says, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Speaking about God's plan, he can do whatever he wants to do and nobody can stop what God wants to do. You see, this is way beyond, and what we're going to read about here today in, in Micah chapter 4 is way beyond what you and I can see, way beyond what we can imagine. In fact, when we look at it and we think about what's happening in the world today, and in Jerusalem in particular, you're going to go, there's no way that that is ever going to happen. But you see, God has a plan, and God will fulfill His plan, always. There's a thing called eschatology. How many of you know what that means? Eschatology. Anybody know? It's the study of last things or study of last days, but a study of last, last thing, kind of looking into the future, the last days. And there, there are people that study this, study the last things in the last day that, that have even a greater uh, understanding than I do for sure. It's not my strongest Point for sure. There are people like we have Orlando V. Hill and, and our gym here studies these things and they're way more qualified. But there's one thing that I do know when I look at this is that the hope of the future is in God's hands. If there's one thing I know that God has it worked out and God is going to do what God wants to do and, and we can be encouraged by that. Because life around us, we're not going to find the hope there. We're going to find the hope in Him and, and God and what He wants to do and what He can do. Romans 15, 13, another one of my favorite passages says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, He's the God of hope. He wants you to have hope. Maybe you walked in here today and you said, I, I've got no hope at all. And, and now you're going to talk about something that's going to take place many years from now or, or in, we don't know exactly how many years from now, is going to take place in the future. I need hope today. Well, he's the God of hope. And by his Holy Spirit, he can give you hope. Paul the Apostle, I, re I was reading in this in, uh, in the book of Acts where Paul went, uh, he was a prisoner and he was being taken from Caesarea to Rome, right? And, and he ended up being on a ship, and they were having a real hard time, and Paul warned them. It says he warned them. This is not a good idea. The, the weather and everything is not a good idea to travel right now. We, we should stop. But they said, we're going to go anyways. And this fierce, fierce storm came. You can read about this in Acts chapter 27. This fierce storm came along, and it says that, that they got, it got so bad that they, they got to the point where they had no hope of being saved. They had no hope whatsoever, and, and that's what happens, isn't it, in life? We get to the point where we have no hope. The storms of this life are real. 
Maybe you have a storm raging in your life right now. It says there that this storm was raging and they had no hope of being saved. And Paul spoke to them because God spoke to him and gave him a word to say, listen, we're going to make it through this storm. And he gave them the hope from God. Now, they lost the ship, they lost all the cargo, they lost everything, but their lives were spared. My hope, the hope that we have, I, I know that many of you have heard, heard this verse and maybe read it, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Many people have that as a life verse, a, a key verse of their lives where they know that God has got a future. God has got a hope. God has got a plan. Primarily or firstly, this is written to the people of Israel. Jeremiah, the prophet, speaking to them, I have a plan for you as a people. God's plan is always restoration. They would turn away from Him. They would reap the, the fruit of turning away from Him, getting into all kinds of bad stuff. But God has a plan of restoration. And for you and me, he always has a plan of restoration. He always has a plan of hope and a future when we turn to him. So let's look at Micah. That's a kind of a long introduction. But, but uh, the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. He's talking about a hope here, isn't he? He's talking about something that is going to take place in the future. If you look back to the very last verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. This is what he said was going to happen. So, so he's saying, though, but in the future, there's something going to take place in this place called Jerusalem. This tiny little sliver of land. When you look at the, the size of, of the nation of Israel compared to uh, the earth, it's a tiny, tiny little place. But, but, but the Bible points over and over back to this place called Jerusalem, back to this land of Israel. And he says here in verse 1 of chapter 4 that the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. It will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised up and, and peoples will stream to it. When will this be? This is always the question. When will this take place? Can you see that happening now? When you look at the, the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and some of you have been there, I know, but some of you have seen pictures of the Temple Mount. Can you imagine now that it's being lifted up as the mountain of the Lord's temple? Can you see that now? The city of Jerusalem. We're going to see this is, a, this is a radical, the, the city of Jerusalem. There is no temple now on the Temple Mount, right? I, I don't have any pictures for you today, but there's a, there's a mountain. You go into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city of hills, but this, in, the, in the center of Jerusalem, there's what they call the Temple Mount. And it's the, this higher uh, place, and it's very flat up there. But there, the temple used to be up there, right? The Lord's Temple, they had the first temple and the second temple. The first temple was destroyed, and then, and then Ezra and Nehemiah came back, and the second temple was built. But in 70 A.D., 
The second temple was completely wiped out. There's nothing left of it. What they call the Wailing Wall is really, it's not even a part of the wall of the temple. It's actually some stones from the foundation underneath where the temple wall would be. It's the closest that they could get. That's all they have left. It's fascinating. You can go down in underneath and see these incredible stones that they put together. That we Today, we don't even know how that they were able to put stones that are that large and they fit so perfectly, you can't even get a piece of paper in between them. But at the present time, there is no temple on the mount. What's on the mount? Two mosques, right? There's the Dome of the Rock, the big golden dome mosque, and then there's a smaller dome. It's kind of grayish, blackish, called Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so it's a very highly contested. There's a lot of battles that take place over this mount. But we see here now, he's saying that this mount is going to be established. We see in other passages talking about coming to Jerusalem where the temple will be there. Now, part of this has to take place to fulfill some of the prophecies about what's going to happen in what we call the tribulation period. There will be a temple during the tribulation period. And the Antichrist will, in the middle of that period, go into this temple and set up an image, go in there himself and, and try to, be, to, to have people worship him. It's not going to be a very good time. So when is he talking about here? And, and, and you'll see as we go on this passage of, of what it's like, you'll see that it's not something that we can kind of picture now. This is going to be during what the Bible calls the millennium. In Revelation chapter 20, spoken of, uh, called the millennium. Which, what does millennium mean? Anybody know? 1,000. Right? It's a 1,000-year period. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. This is a millennium period that, that he's speaking about here. Now, now, again, Micah writing to the people there in that day, he's talking about some of the things that were happening then, and we'll see, he kind of goes back and forth, but he's also speaking about things that will take place many, many years ahead from when he wrote these words. I like... I found this verse in Zechariah. Look what it says here in Zechariah chapter 8. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Very different from what we see today, isn't it? There's a chain of events, as I understand them, a chain of events that are going to take place to lead up to this, what we call the millennium. There's going to be the rapture of the church. We've studied that in, in uh, the books of Thessalonians. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation period, which I just referred to. After that, we see that Christ will come to the earth to rule and to reign in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. That's the period we're looking at, we're talking about here. After that, one great last rebellion, and then what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. Warren Wearsby said this, The last days began with the ministry of Christ, and they climaxed with his return to earth 
to establish his kingdom on earth. And Jerusalem will become the world's most important city. The world's most important city, the city of Jerusalem. That's why, that's why this tiny little country, this small city, really, relatively speaking, why do you see it in the news almost, almost every day, at least every week? There's something about Jerusalem, Israel in the news. All eyes to Jerusalem. Why? Because God is going to do something there. God is going to do something there. It's going to be incredible. Can we see it? Can we figure out how He's going to do that? Well, God is the creator of the universe. God is going to do it miraculously in many, many ways. Look at it in Jeremiah. He talks about He says, At that time they will, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. You're going to call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, of Yahweh. That's radical. But that's what God's plan is. That's where we have hope that God, is, God has a plan. He's going to fulfill His plan. So let's look in Micah chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. He says, Many nations will come and they will say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and he will settle disputes for nations, strong nations, far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Do you think people are able to do this? Do you think we as human beings, you know, it's this idea, well, you know, the, the uh, evolutionary kind of thought and the humanistic thought is that if we just keep working at things, we're going to get better and better and better. We're going to solve all the problems of the world. We're going to keep things uh, going until we finally, there's going to be just peace everywhere. Now, I've been hearing, since I was very young, I've been hearing that kind of uh, philosophy. Have, have we seen that happening? No, we, we take one step forward maybe, but always two steps back. That's kind of the way it is. L left up to us, to man, there's never going to be peace on the earth. And then you've got a guy like the Antichrist come along and say, listen, I've got the answer. I, I can tell you how to have this peace that we all want and then, you know, kind of deceives everybody to follow this plan that he has. But it's not until Jesus comes to the earth. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. But he says here there will be no more war. Look at verse 4. It says, it says, every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make him afraid. Why? For the Lord Almighty has spoken. There will be no more fear, no more war, and no more fear. I'm looking forward to that. You know, again, I, I didn't look at look at the statistics, but at any given moment, there are wars taking place all over the planet at any given time. 
sometimes more than others, and, and some are greater than others, like you know, some of the world wars, we call them World War I and World War II, but they're you know, where people's lives are just being you know, wiped out because people can't get along with one another because of all the problems that we have. But he says here they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. God is going to do something here. I don't think we can do it, but when Jesus comes, he's going to do it. When he sets it up, he's going to do it. Verse 5 says, All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. He's contrasting here the current situation that everybody's walking in all their different gods, and we see that today, all the different gods that are worshipped even in our society and throughout the world. But he says, we will walk in the name of the Lord. We will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. And he's contrasting it with the conditions in the millennium where it's going to be very clear that there is one God. But for us here now, we have to make a choice. Which God am I going to serve? Joshua talks about it, right? And, and he gets to the end of his life and he says, excuse me, he says, you know, all, when it's all said and done, it says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Yahweh. We will follow him. We will turn away from the things of the world and follow him. And, and, and he is our God. You make your choice, he says. You can read it in Joshua chapter 24. You, you have to make your own choice. We all have to make our own choice. Who are you going to follow? At this point in the millennium, it's going to be clear that he is the, the one on the throne. But you and I need to make our choices now. We can't wait till then. We need to make our choices now. Look at verse 6. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the, the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion. From that day and forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So he's got, again, this plan of restoration. God always has a heart for restoration. You, you read it from cover to cover. You read about it in the prodigal son, where the prodigal son went away, but he came back and the father received him. In fact, he ran to meet him. Now, this idea of Jerusalem being restored and, and uh, where the Lord was ruling and reigning forever and ever, when you look at the New Testament, when Jesus came the first time, that's what the Jews wanted. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the rule of Rome, to set up his kingdom, to be the Messiah. And that's what Messiah, they know. And these, these are some of the verses that speak about what Messiah will do. He will set up his kingdom. But when he came the first time, he didn't come to do that. That kind of threw him off. What did he come to do? He came to set up, he came to die on the cross for our sins so that he could come back the second time to set up his kingdom. Without our sins being paid for, there's no hope for you and I. Our first and, and best hope is always the cross. We start at the cross that's where life begins for you and I, at the cross, where Jesus died on the cross for my sin. We talked about it last week, didn't we? Where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
where he took the penalty for my sin upon himself. He felt the, the judgment upon himself. Verses 9 and 10, he says, Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like, a, like that of a woman in labor. Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now, you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. But there you will be rescued, and there the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. He's speaking now to the present, to the present day, to their present. He says, why do you now cry aloud? In other words, the things that are going on, you know, why do you now cry aloud? Why are you saying all these things? But, but there is judgment coming. He's warning them. Like we said, the big, the, the big uh, kind of uh, context of the prophets is that God's warning them that you need to turn back to him. Now, this warning came and he said to them, you will go to Babylon, right? He says that in, in verse 10, you will go to Babylon. But as they said in one of the earlier studies, that was postponed. Why? Anybody remember why it was postponed? Who had a place? Who helped it to be postponed? Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, right. He, King Hezekiah responded to this word. And he listened and he heard and he turned his heart to God. And his father was completely the opposite. So despite what his father was like, he said, I'm going to follow the Lord. He went and he, and he had the place to, to turn the whole nation back to following after God. And this judgment was averted. It didn't have to happen. And so for over 100 years, the judgment was held off. But it happened between 607 and 586 B.C. It was finished in 586, but it began in 607. The people of Judah and Jerusalem were carried off to Babylon, what we call the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. You've heard these kinds of terms. It's good to kind of have an understanding what this is, what we're talking about here. They were carried off as a nation. Some were left in the land, but, but uh, they were carried off and in, in, into captivity, into what they call an exile, out of their own land. Seventy years later, which happened in 537 B.C., they began to come back to the land with people like Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the temple. And the temple was then rebuilt. But again, what happened? They turned away again and again in 70 AD. The whole temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. And, and the people were scattered. But God still had a plan, didn't he? And he began in 1948, you know, Jew, you know the, the nation of Israel then becomes a nation again and, and people are streaming back to the, the, the city of Jerusalem, to the land of Israel. Is that the millennium? I don't think so when you look down there now. All they're doing in the nation of Israel, their highest priority is what? Preparing for war. Their highest priority is protection. 
the uh, systems that they have developed and that they buy from us and from other countries to protect the people of Jerusalem. The, 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 the machines of war are, are everywhere. But one day, God's plan will be fulfilled. Verse 11, But now many nations are gathered against you, and they say, Let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. And He who gathers them, like sheaves to the threshing floor, rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hoofs of bronze. You will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God is going to do something. God is going to do something. There's a, a future hope that he has for you and me. There's a present hope and a future hope, but God always has a plan. Now, when you look at those verses there, and he talks about enemies, doesn't he? The enemies of Israel, and, and think about it today. I, I don't know that there's a country on earth that has more enemies than Israel does, honestly. You see it in the United Nations, they all vote against them. And even, and even our country, who has stood with Israel for many, many, many years, uh, the last vote, we abstained, we pulled back, which was, a, I believe, a wrong choice, and created some more havoc for, for the people of Israel. See, all this goes back, uh, if you look back to Genesis chapter 12, he says, you know, who, you know, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Why? Because God established that as His nation, as His people. And also, primarily, because the Messiah would come through the nation of Israel. I know this is a lot of this. I'm throwing out a lot of different things here. I understand that. But, but I, I, I hope that something that you can grab onto is that there's hope that God is in control, that God has a plan and a purpose, and God will take care of His people, but also that God is always a God of restoration. And we see that here, that even though the enemies thought, you know, they could just destroy, that God would then, who had a plan, he had these thoughts, he had a, an idea, he has a plan for Jerusalem, he has a plan for the temple, he has a plan for the Jewish nation, and I want to say this, that he has a plan for you as well. He has a plan for me. We need, to, we need to say, God, well, what is your plan for me? What, what, what is your path for my life? And I want to say this, that God's way, His plan, His path is always the best. Uh, I'm just trying to remember a scripture that says, you know, there, that, that we have plans and, and we have ideas and they always lead to death. There is a way that seems right to the man, to a man, but the end thereof, what? Death. Is Death. That's where we're going. That's, that's the direction that our plans go to. But God's plan, God's purpose to send a Messiah, to send a Savior, which we'll see in chapter 5, is what we're talking about here today. I love this verse too. I have a lot of favorite verses. Have you noticed? I can't hardly keep track of them all. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
greater than you and I could ever think or imagine. That's why some of these things, you know, they kind of blow our minds when we think about what God is going to do and, and how can God possibly uh, set up a millennium, millennial kingdom? Well, when Jesus returns physically to the earth, we'll see. I don't think you and I are going to be here because we believe that the Lord will take us to be with Himself before that, before that time, unless you do not belong to Him. But I'll close with this passage in Hebrews 6.19. I referred to it earlier. Let me just quote it for you. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this hope, the hope that we run to Him for, the hope of Jesus Christ. He says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain. It's an anchor for the soul. You know, what... what What's going to keep us strong? It's that confident expectation in Jesus Christ that He has a plan, that He's, that he's preparing a place for us, that He died for me, that He died for you. That's why He refers, to, refers in the book of Hebrews here that, he, that it, this hope, enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain. He's talking about the Holy of Holies. Again, He's referring to the temple where Jesus Christ, what happened when he died on the cross? What does it say happened that day? It says the veil was torn from top to bottom, not from the bottom to the top, from top to bottom, opening the way for you and I into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's my hope. That's your hope. It's in Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and though it's sometimes it's, it's so far beyond us, but I pray You'd help us to just to grasp the hope that's there. The fact that hundreds and hundreds of years, really thousands of years before the Millennial Kingdom will be set up, You, had, you prophesied, You gave it to Your prophets to give to us so we can read about it here today in 2017. So, Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us to have hope today. Maybe we're, maybe we're in the storms that are just battering and beating us down. Maybe we're facing things that we just don't have any wisdom to face. Maybe we can't sleep at night. Maybe we can't even eat. We're just, we're just so distraught. But the hope that confident expectations that you are in control, that you are on the throne and that you have a plan and your plan will always, always, always take place. No plan of yours will be thwarted, thwarted as Job said. I pray that, that those in this room that are believers, that we would, each of us, uh, fall onto our knees and faces before you and, and cry out to you as the, the hope the hope, the only hope that we have. That we are yours. We belong to you because of what Jesus did on the cross. I pray here too, Lord, for any here that's, that are in this room. I don't know every person. That you know those who are looking for hope, who are lost, who are, are, are as Ephesians says, without God and without hope in the world. 
And maybe they're here today, it's no coincidence, they're here today looking for some hope, looking for something that would, would bring them some peace. And if that's you today, listen, I want to tell you, and I've been telling you that Jesus is the answer, that he died for you. And all you need to do is put your trust in him and ask him into your life and heart. And do it simply, do it simply by prayer and, and uh, with, a, with an honest heart saying, Jesus, I, I, I'm lost. I, I have no hope. I, I need you. I come to you. Please come into my life and receive you and believe in you today.